what's important is to know that there's a way to get answers and some accountability for what happened. And the money is not necessarily the measure of that, although in our civil justice system, maybe it by definition becomes that in the end. At the beginning, what people are looking for is, what do I do next? How do I take some level of control over the uncontrollable? Genuine empathy and a holistic approach to a client's needs during the most difficult times in their lives helps set winning firms apart. When something like this happens, suddenly you have no control. This is an uncontrolled outcome and it can't be fixed in the traditional way, right? I can't go and fix it. And so I think from a marketing perspective, it's important to make sure that the messaging is we can help get answers for you. But nobody wants to convert it into a dollar figure on day one when they're looking for a lawyer. What they're looking for is answers to the questions that they're facing. You're listening to Personal Injury Mastermind, where we give you the tools you need to take your personal injury practice to the next level. Since 1997, Kyle Backus and Darren Shanker, founding partners of Denver-based Backus & Shanker, have grown to over 27 lawyers and over 100 employees. A firm that began with just $15,000, a shared passion, and a meeting at a local bar now boasts a massive marketing budget and status as one of the largest advertisers in the state of Colorado. I met with Kyle to discuss bootstrapping a law firm, how to spend the best marketing dollars, and the importance of a holistic representation. I'm your host, Chris Dreyer, founder and CEO of Rankings.io. We help elite personal injury attorneys dominate first page rankings with search engine optimization. Being at the top of your game begins with understanding the people around you. So let's get to know our guest. Here's Kyle Backus, founding partner at Backus & Shanker. Darren and I randomly met. We both were employed by a small personal injury practice uh, in Denver, Colorado. He was from Colorado. I had moved from uh, Florida to Colorado. I didn't know very many people. And uh, he and I were paired up to do some personal injury trials within this small law firm. The owner of that law firm wasn't really committed to spending money to put trials on the right way. Darren and I both, I think, had a, a different perspective and pushed the issue. And we won a couple of trials together. And we just got to talking at a bar one night and said, hey, maybe we should uh, break out and, and, and try something on our own. And that literally was the first piece of it. Were they just not wanting to invest the right of money into a case for like the expert witnesses and do the prep work to really take that, that case to trial? Or was it more they're wanting to settle? Really, it was exactly what you said. It was the investment in the cases. This putting the money out there on the quality experts, on taking the depositions that need to be taken to put ourselves in the best position to win at trial. And Darren and I are both very competitive people. And I think that we were motivated to win and to do what was necessary to win. And we got a lot of kind of pushback on uh, the, the money that was being spent to develop the cases. And so we really just thought that there was a better way to more comprehensively represent people, kind of raise the level of representation. And, and that's what we set out to do. A lot of times people talk about value exchange and, and what you're saying is, hey, instead of trying to 
do a low investment and keep your costs down. It's like, hey, let's invest more and then extend the value of the case, you know, and get those bigger settlements. You both wanted to win. You're very competitive. So let's talk about that. What are the what are the values that you and Darren share that really make you good partners uh, for the firm? You know what's amazing about Darren and I is that we've now been partners since 1997. Well, yeah, 1997. When Darren and I started this practice, we knew each other about 22 months. And to think about how little we knew about each other, really, when we, other than our work ethic, when we invested in this partnership together. And it's been an incredible ride because we really have never had an argument of any large nature. We've never raised our voices at one another. We've built this thing from the two of us to having 27 lawyers and more than 100 employees. And that's a a long track, right? And the way that it, it works with us is that we respect each other's opinions. We don't always agree with one another, but it's been a terrific marriage. And I'll tell you another interesting thing. Darren and I spend very little time in our personal lives together. And that's always just been the case. It's been a professional relationship. And certainly we've gone to ball games and done stuff, but we primarily have different social circles and maintained separate lives, despite the fact that we've been together as partners for so long. And I think that that makes our relationship all the more special in in a professional way. It's been just tremendous to see what you've accomplished. And I want to take it back to that $15,000, that bootstrap, right? You know, growing a firm with $15,000, especially today, nowadays, it's so saturated from a marketing perspective. But, you know, how did you initially put yourself out there to get those first cases to start building revenue to, to start the growth process? So let me tell you a, a brief story about the 15000 So Darren and I sat down and we were at a bar uh, here in Denver, a well-known bar called the Cherry Cricket. We decided we were going to do this. And so we said, hey, how much money do you have in the bank? I said, well, I don't really have any money in the bank. How much money do you have in the bank? And he was in the same position. We said, well, let's both go back and see how much equity we have in our houses that we kind of starter homes that we had uh, each had. And we'll come back together in a few weeks and see what that looks like. And we got back together and Darren looked at me and he said, yeah, I talked to the bank, we went through it, and they're willing to loan me $0.00 and zero cents in a home equity loan. And I said, well, I've got $12,400 in a home equity loan that they're willing to loan me, and we can cobble together a little bit more money. And so we signed an agreement that I wished that I still had, and it was written on paper, and it literally said that if we went out of business, that Darren was going to owe me $7,000. And I wish I had it because we'd hang it up on the wall now. I have no idea what happened to that document, but we then got that home equity loan off of the first house that I ever owned. And that is the money that we used to start the business. And as a result of that, I went out first and I was the agreement was that I would be paid $500 a month for the first six months in terms of getting the business off the ground. And I hit the streets uh, going to every personal injury law firm that I could think of, especially the older attorneys, and went into their offices and said, look, just will you just give me the stuff that you're rejecting? I don't want anything that you want to take. Just send the stuff that you are rejecting and let me take a look at it and see if we can make some money off of it. 
an interesting thing. The very first case that was ever referred to our law firm went all the way to trial and lost in about uh, an hour or less. I think the jury was out less than an hour. So the, the history of our law firm is our very first client. We couldn't get the case settled, went all the way to court. We lost the trial, jury trial in about an hour, probably lost about $6,000 on that case a year and a half into our practice. I love what you did with the going to the other firms and saying, give me the ones that you don't want. I think there's so much money left on the table. It's relationships. It's that grassroots, you know, shake their hand, integrity thing. So you lost the first case. When did the momentum shift? Where was it where it started going on the upside? Well, you know, we were very principled from the very beginning of this. And we knew we had kind of a short leash. And we took out at the time there was a in the Saturday newspaper, there would be a TV guide. And in that TV guide, we took out a little business card size ad that literally said car accident, free advice, and gave our our telephone number, thinking that people who were injured, you know, you didn't have your TV channels on your remote at the time, that if you were home from work because you were injured, that you probably would be looking through the TV guide. And that really Believe it or not, it worked. It gave us some business. But we set a principled rule with one another that we called the rule of five once we started going. And the rule of five was, I don't care where you find it. I don't know how you get it. But each month, each of us need to bring in five new cases. And so we challenged each other competitively to go out, whether that was hanging out in the bar, hanging out at church, you know, whatever it took. Like I told you, go into law offices and feeding off of this little ad that we had put in the TV guide to commit to each other that at the end of each month, we were going to be accountable for trying to bring in five new cases a month into the law firm. And, you know, when you set goals like that and you are committed to it and you're competitive, you may not get there every month, but uh, there's a winner and there's a loser in that competition each month in terms of the the business side. I'm I'm not talking about the client side, but there's a winner and a loser between Darren and myself as to who could accomplish it. And that really is the methodology that we use to start getting our our business off the ground. And we went from a little ad in the TV guide to settling a few cases and, and doubling down that money into the yellow pages with a small ad in the yellow pages, all the way up to at the height of the Yellow Pages, I think we were spending about $600,000 a year on Yellow Page advertising with uh, double truck ads, for those of you who are old enough to even know what that is. And then the internet came around and we, we also were very early on the internet. In the past, TV Guide and Yellow Page ads worked because they had our attention. There was very limited alternatives. Over the years, tactics and strategies have changed. I wanted to know what tactics Kyle sees as critical for law firm growth today. Well, I think it depends upon what kind of law firm you want to be, right? I mean, some say keep it small and keep it all, right? Keep all the money. Others have a a growth mind. We have operated on, on a growth mindset from day one to the present time. And so... I think we're we're dealing with a very uh, fractured marketplace in terms of, of of advertising. We have made a, a long-term and repeated commitment to taking a certain amount of uh, percentage of our gross revenue and projected gross revenue and investing it on an annual basis. And we've stuck to that. I mean, we're now, I'm not talking about just lawyers, but one of the 10 biggest local advertisers in the state of Colorado 
period, all industries, local. Now there's national advertisers, of course. So we're on, you know, buses, billboards, TV, radio. We do the, the full gamut of advertising. To me, the most interesting thing when I look to the future is the further convergence of the internet and TV. And we are invested in the, the kind of the streaming platforms. I will tell you, if a personal injury lawyer comes into our market and puts up a few billboards from a competitive perspective, from my perspective, I don't think that's going anywhere. I think billboards are an add-on to a brand if you've gotten to a point where you can establish a brand. So I think if I were not going to be trying to establish a brand, but instead just trying to get business uh, without branding, I would be much more engaged in just kind of the internet as a platform. And I know it's very expensive. I know the PPC side of things is extremely expensive. And I know SEO is competitive to be on page one. So I get that. But I think I would be looking towards how to best monetize my ROI through an internet platform than I would going out and doing branding. Branding is very expensive. It's a big long-term time commitment. It certainly can be accomplished. I think that even when we started branding here in Colorado, the marketplace was not as crowded as it is now. And so I think that the amount of money that it takes to to get in and, and brand, you know, when we first went on TV, we were an internet law firm after, you know, the yellow pages, internet. When Google bought YouTube, in my mind, I was like, I got to be on both places. I don't know what the future of TV even looks like. And I don't want to hedge wrong on that. And so when we first went on TV in 2007, so 14 years ago now, you know, we sat down and talked to various marketing companies and those that were truthful to us at the time told us, look, if you don't have a million dollars that you're willing to invest in this and lose, meaning you're not going to see that million dollars, you may see a different million dollars, but that million dollars is going to go away before you ever see any real return on it. If you're not willing to invest that kind of money into the market, and this is again, 2007, don't do it in your DMA. And we knew what that sort of sacrifice looked like, and we committed to doing it. I can't imagine what that, what a truthful marketing company might tell somebody coming into a reasonably sized DMA at this juncture in terms of what it would take to brand your name against the competition that's already there. So that's a long answer. I know. I think that if I were looking to brand, I'd make sure that I'm committed to what it's going to take to brand and the long term. And if I'm not committed to branding, I would be more stealth-like and more focused on, on strikes in ROI on internet or local market niches, right? Local community niches where you don't have to take over a whole market, but you're going to be the main guy in in X market. And I think that there's a lot of avenues for local by uh, zip code advertising that didn't exist because of the technology that's available now. Let's just assume you, you have these kind of binary choices to make this branding or this kind of direct response where you're really looking at ROI per, for your advertising investment. The first question I have is when you're looking at a brand, how do you evaluate the success? Are you looking at just top impressions? Like, how do you evaluate if it's working? Is it focus groups? Like, what does that look like to even know if your branding strategy is working? It's a great question. And the bigger your brand becomes, the more difficult it becomes to assess. And I don't think that's 
just in our business. I think McDonald's probably has a difficult time knowing whether if they took away five billboards in a market, are their sales going to drop until they would try uh, to do so, right? So when I look at a branding overall, first and foremost, when you start it, you can't judge yourself in the first year or two years, probably. Those are investment years that, again, if I see people come on TV and they run a campaign for a few months and they're trying to judge their ROI on that few months, they're it's a dead loser. I can tell you it's a hundred percent of the time. It's going to be a dead loser. Now you can do some mass tort marketing, direct response on a cable, but I'm talking about creating a brand in a marketplace. So I think what you have to look at over the long haul is response volume, meaning calls, form submissions, chats, and case count on a quarterly basis, quarter over quarter, year over year, and is it growing or isn't it growing with your continued investment in the marketplace over the long haul? That's what I do. Uh, and I think that's the way to, to gauge whether your marketing and your branding is working. On the micro, it becomes very difficult. And I think we're in a place now where we almost have to, from a branding perspective, we almost have to buy the case twice, which becomes extremely expensive. One, we have to be branded in the marketplace so that we have an awareness for people, not on a call to action basis, but just our uh, a top of name recognition, right? And then when somebody has a direct need, and then where do they go? They go to the internet. And when they go to the internet, what do they see? Oh, they see those guys and they feel like there's a familiarity with us because of the brand. And so then most likely we're having to pay also to be present on the internet. And so in that sense, I feel like from a branding perspective, we almost pay for the case twice. I think we get a, a higher ROI on that internet because of the brand that we're creating, but you can't rely upon self-reporting and you can't even re- rely upon analytics because it's just becomes too diverse. So I think you have to look and say, using the, the best of your capabilities, if I add a piece to the market, does my case count go up? And does it go up more than I think it would go up without it? And we've done some interesting things where we've said, look, uh, some of the information that we have when we look at the zip codes of people who contact us, right? We get their email addresses and we get their addresses and we can look at zip codes. And when you do an analysis of that, you can say, okay, where are these people calling us from? What if we did more or did less advertising directly to those people? Is it a game changer? I have people who, the companies who try to keep track of these external analytics for me and present to me on data. And sometimes the data is favorable and sometimes it's not. So the bigger you get, the more branded you get, the harder it is to figure out what's working and what's not. Attribution can kind of be blended and murky, even when it comes to digital. Ultimately, all of those branded signals work together to win a client. I want to know how granular Kyle gets when evaluating impressions and leads. I challenge the vendors that I use to get granular to prove to me that on the allocation of my budget that they should get more of it. And I do not rely upon a single vendor for all avenues of my marketing because I want there to be a competition amongst them. And so as I enter the fourth quarter of any year, we try to do predictive modeling as to what the probable income to the firm 
is going to be based upon realistic data. You know, what's our case count? What's our average uh, fee per case? And we do the math, right? And then I take the probable income and I I know what percentage of that I'm going to allocate towards marketing. And then I have a marketing budget. And then I invite the various vendors from whether it's billboards, buses, TV, radio, SEO, digital, PPC to present to me their strategy for the upcoming year. And I sit down and I listen to them and all of them tell me how all of my cases came from them, uh, (laughs) of course. And I've been doing it for a long time. And so, and I'm straightforward with people. And I then kind of do Wheel of Fortune. You know, you got your pot of money and maybe it's the old Wheel of Fortune. At least when I used to watch Wheel of Fortune, you could like, then you had your money and then you got to go spend it on buy stuff. You could buy this trip or that. Maybe they don't do that anymore in Wheel of Fortune. But, and so I look at it like that. Then I've, I've got to make the best decisions that I can make based upon the data that's presented to me. And so I ask them to get as granular as they can to show me why they're the source of my cases. And I challenge them on it. And then I make informed decisions and see if our case count goes up. I think that's smart. And the the more data you get, the the better decisions you can make. And you, when you have you know a lot more billboards or or a higher Google ad spend, you can get economies of scale, better data to make those decisions. The other thing that I, I liked what you said was you use multiple vendors. So I've always looked at it like this: individuals have like a core competency, and then they have context. And if you can find the agencies that are core in one thing, and that's their thing. I know it's a little bit harder from an effort and sacrifice standpoint where you got to talk to multiple people, but you're actually getting the specialists in their craft as opposed to just a context, like a little add-on service that maybe they aren't the best in the world at. So I think that's super smart. I'm very straightforward with vendors because they want all of my business for everything. And I tell them up front, look, I want you all in on PPC and I know you do other stuff and I need you to work with the other vendors as well. And I know they may be competitors in your own space with you, but that's the the relationship that I'm looking for is I just tell them I'm not going to put all of my eggs in one basket. And I think that it has paid dividends over the years. It is more complicated. It'd be much easier just to have one full service company and say, okay, you guys do it all. But I think the fragmentation of those duties pays dividends. Let's talk about your book. You recently wrote a book, Unthinkable, Real Answers for Families Confronting Catastrophic Injury or Death, uh, and it has significant meaning to you. Can you share with us what life events inspired the book? I sure can. As a personal injury lawyer, and as the listeners on this podcast know, when you're a personal injury lawyer, you help families catastrophically injured and death. And maybe some lawyers are drawn to it because of a life experience. I wasn't. I just like the David versus Goliath mentality of it. And I, But in the back of my mind, and I probably believe in the back of most personal injury lawyers' mind, you, you have this like, I hope I never get that knock on the door. I hope it never happens to me. And um, what happened in my family is that I was doing this for more than 25 years in April of 2020. So April the 28th of 2020. My own mother was on a COVID walk. She had, you know, this is right at the beginning of COVID. She had been told, don't go hang out with your grandkids. But uh, she was in Florida where she lived and uh, she was killed while walking across the street in a crosswalk. 
and uh, was hit by a concrete mixer truck at about 5.30 in the evening in Winter Park, Florida. And we got that knock on the door and that call that everybody dreads to get. You know, of course, an event like that changes your life forever. How that led to this book is as I was going through the grieving process and working through my loss, one of the things that really, and, in, and especially in dealing with my family, you know, they had so many questions that they were asking me. And these were questions not about a wrongful death case, but about all of the other things attendant to what happens to a family that you have to deal with in the face of something like this from, hey, the police want to talk to us to, so are they going to charge this guy? Is this guy going to go to jail? This guy who was driving, how long is he? I hope he's going to spend like 10 years in jail. You know, the questions that come up in it within the family dynamic. And what I realized is that I think I had done a very good job of representing families over the course of more than a quarter of a century on these issues. But I suddenly saw an entirely different side of it, a much more holistic loss that was occurring. And I felt like who was in a better position than a lawyer who's done this for more than a quarter of a century, who's now experienced this in the most graphic, terrible way that you could possibly experience it with your own mom? And who's better to try to help families and even other lawyers understand the totality of the issues that a family faces and the questions that they have. And these families, and I know it because I was there, are not sleeping. They're up in the middle of the night. They're grasping for answers. And you know what happens? They start looking on the internet for answers. Simple things like, should I talk to the police? What happens with the body? Do I need an autopsy? What do I do with the car? What do I do with the pets? You start looking at this and you know what pops up is a bunch of lawyer ads that basically say almost to victims, you know, congratulations, somebody was killed. You may have won the lottery. Call me and let me get you a bunch of money. And, and I understand that because when I went back and looked at my own advertising in that marketplace from the vendors who are competing with the other vendors that we talk about, that's what you see. But there's a lot of other questions that I think are on the forefront of people's minds. Certainly, the civil justice system is one that they need to be worried about. And it's important. And it's an important part of this book. But the book is really trying to address kind of in chronological order all of the questions that come up when somebody's been killed or catastrophically injured as a result of somebody else's negligence and what you can expect from the different components uh, uh, and issues that you're confronted with. No one is immune from the unexpected and tragic loss of a loved one. In Kyle's story, we can see ourselves, our shared humanity. I want to know how reading this book can spark true empathy and help personal injury lawyers become better attorneys. What's important is to know that there's a way to get answers and some accountability for what happened. And the money is not necessarily the measure of that, although in our civil justice system, maybe it it. it by definition, becomes that in the end. At the beginning, what people are looking for is, you know, what do I do next? How do I take some level of control over the uncontrollable? And that's how people feel is, I think many people like to have some sense that, of, that they're in control of their day-to-day -day life. When something like this happens, suddenly you have no control. This is an an uncontrolled outcome, and it can't be fixed in the traditional way, right? I can't go and fix it. And so I think from a marketing perspective, it's important to make sure 
that the messaging is we can help get answers for you. You know, it's not about how much money uh, you may be entitled to. That's I can tell you that's that's not what people care about. They may care about how they're going to feed their family, but nobody wants to convert it into a dollar figure on day one when they're looking for a lawyer. What they're looking for is answers to the questions that they're facing. And they're trying to just get through one hour at a time, then one day at a time, then one week at a time. And so I think that's important. And I think that bifurcating ourselves away from addressing the criminal justice system is a mistake. And what I mean by that is not that we, when we're representing people in civil cases, not that we have any final impact on what charges are brought or or what happens, but making sure that the family, that you're part of that journey with the family is extremely important because it actually elevates the importance of the civil justice system. Because what happens in the in the criminal justice system is that, you know, as we know as lawyers, that's a system set up by the government to punish people for breaking society's rules. And a lot of our clients don't even understand that. And if we say, look, I'm here to help you on the civil case, but the criminal case is being handled by the government and you don't play any further role, I think you're doing a disservice because they need your help. And how do they need your help? Something as simple as entering an appearance in the criminal case to make sure that notice is being given to the family of the events, unknown to a lot of lawyers and really started by Ronald Reagan after he was shot. There was this big movement to creating constitutional state rights for uh, victims of crime. And in almost every state that we've looked at, serious bodily injury resulting in death caused by careless driving qualifies people as crime victims under these constitutional uh, rights statutes. And that means that although your clients may not have, they may not have a, a right to control the criminal justice system, they have a right to be respected in it, to participate in it, to be informed in it, to be supported in it. And that's why most police departments have victims advocates, the people who are probably the next to talk to you after the police are victims advocates. And those victims advocates are, their job exists because of this constitutional obligation. And so availing yourself and your client to all of this, then teaching your client that the criminal justice system is based upon, and the book goes into this, and for the clients and for the lawyers, the criminal justice system is based primarily on intentional conduct, right? If you run over somebody intentionally, you're going to jail for a long time. Negligence and carelessness is treated on a very low end of the criminal justice system, as we know as lawyers, but clients don't know or understand that. And so getting the clients through to understand that that the criminal justice system, even in your best day, if there's not a DUI or some sort of habitual traffic conduct, you may get a small fine. You might get a loss of a driver's license for a year, even though somebody has been killed. And that feels so unfair to these clients. And if you're not engaged in that conversation, they're they're feeling re-victimized as opposed to empowered. And the empowerment is, I'm going to take you through this system and we're going to make sure that you have, that your rights are afforded and that you have the victim's advocate at your side. And we're going to help you through that. But you're going to see this system and what it can provide for you and what it can't provide for you. But we have this civil justice system that you are in control of and you do get to make the decisions regarding. And we're going to walk you down that path. And I think that's so I think that's really important. I think that that and I've been working with personal injury attorneys for 10 years. I don't think I've heard it described in that manner ever. I wouldn't have described it in that manner if I hadn't lived it. Yeah, that's really powerful. And 
I can see just the, you know, you talked about like changing your external messaging, but internally you share the book with your other attorneys and your staff, then they're going to treat your, your clients differently in a fuller manner because it kind of details that, that experience that you went through. And I think that that isn't talked about enough too. Everyone talks about leads, leads, leads. And then they talk about sales from an intake perspective, but they don't talk about that after that, after they're a client, the experience they go through till the very end. And I think that's where there's a lot of stress and uncertainty. And and first of all, I really applaud you doing that. I mean, if, if I was in a terrible circumstance, that's exactly how I would want to be treated. Even from a marketing perspective, the next part of the book deals with, you know, kind of the aftermath, right? And a lot of that is is probate related. You know, is there a will? Isn't there a will? Who gets what? Who's entitled to bring a case? And I will tell you, using this concept, this kind of holistic representation and involving my friends who are probate lawyers, who are very well-known probate lawyers in answering simple questions for people, what they find is I can make a referral to somebody and say, you know, I can talk to you about the intestate succession statute and I can talk to you about whether there's a will and who gets what. But if the person who dies owns real estate, that real estate can't be transferred outside of a probate court. That's the law. You know, you can't transfer real property unless there's joint tenancy or other some other exceptions. But that means I get to make a referral to a probate lawyer to assist who may or may not make money off of that piece of it. But usually when they're dealing with the family, this opens the eyes of the entire family to do I have a will? Do I have an advanced directive? Do I have these things? And it leads to relationships with probate lawyers who then I tell you, when they get somebody who walks in their office who has suffered this, who are they going to refer them to? They're going to refer them to me. You know why? Because they know I'm going to deal with this holistically and they know that I know what I'm talking about and that I'm involved to help the clients from beginning to end, although my piece of it is the civil justice system, making sure that I'm, we're talking about all of the other aspects of it. So I think that it's conducive to practice growth, to understand the holistic needs of the clients who are walking in with this type of injury. I think you do a disservice to the client and to your practice if you're, if you're treating the people who come in with catastrophic injury or death cases in the same way that you're treating somebody who, even somebody who needs a back surgery, that's an entirely different problem. The best way to, to build a relationships is a referral. If you're just hanging out and your friends, like that's one thing, but it's, it the, builds in that actual reciprocity um, and goodwill and just goodwill. One final question here. What's next for Bacchus and Shanker? One of the things that we've done internally and we have, I think, maybe the privilege of doing is we've bifurcated parts of our practice where we have lawyers who now are only handling these catastrophic injury and death cases and only handling complex, really remanded mass tort cases. We looked at our whole law firm and said, we've got some very skilled lawyers who maybe some of their talents are being underutilized because of the broad spectrum of cases that they were handling. And so we designed what we call at our firm, we called it the elite litigation group within our firm. And we divested those lawyers from working on any cases that don't meet the criteria that would warrant consideration of the things in the book. Frankly, that really came out of the death of my mother and realizing kind of just the concierge level of service that we want to provide to a certain segment. And so 
looking forward to continuing to grow that aspect of our law firm and uh, continuing to compete and invest. And we're also our uh, opening neighborhood offices. We've finished a couple of 10-year leases in big downtown locations. And instead, we're going out and doing kind of the bank model and opening some community uh, law offices, forming real estate groups and leasing the office space back to the law firm through the real estate LLCs as a method to hopefully get to the end of the next 10 years and not look back and say, what, we just spent $10 million in rent and what do we have to show for it? Those are kind of the, the things that we're doing now. Kyle encourages firm owners to engage in open conversation with employees about what draws them to practice. Many of us are drawn to this work because of personal experience and tragedy. Draw on personal experience to connect with your clients. Begin your marketing campaign from a place of empathy. Help your clients feel empowered as they go through the legal system. I'd like to thank Kyle Backus from Backus & Schenker for sharing a story with us, and I hope you gained some valuable insights from the conversation. You've been listening to Personal Injury Mastermind. I'm Chris Dreyer. If you like this episode, leave us a review. We'd love to hear from our listeners. I'll catch you on next week's PIM with another incredible guest and all the strategies you need to master personal injury marketing.